Good evening, everyone. I invite you to turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. Our text for this evening uh, slots in between Paul uh, writing this letter to Ephesians, uh, telling the church in chapter 1 about the blessing that they have received in Christ. And in chapters 4 through to 6, uh, Paul is outlining how they should live their lives in light of this blessing. Uh, so here our text for this evening, chapter 2, verses 1 through to 10, outlines what that blessing that we have received in Christ is. Uh, so let me read, starting in verse 1 of Ephesians chapter 2. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Well, there's a question that I want us to be considering as we delve deeper into the text this evening. And that question is, do we really understand the blessing that we have received from God? Paul is about to outline what living a life blessed in Christ looks like. But first, he addresses what this blessing is, where it comes from, and why we have received it. This text shows us that we were dead apart from Christ, we have new life in Christ Jesus, and then finally how we can be living out that new life in Christ. And throughout this whole section of Scripture, Paul is explaining who we are and letting that guide what we do. See how Paul starts this passage in verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Paul here is reminding the church in Ephesus and us here now in Palmerston North what we have been saved from. He said earlier in chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. And now Paul is showing us what that blessing is. So, who were we according to this verse? Well, we were dead, spiritually lifeless bodies, 
following the prince of the power of the air, Satan, through the natural course of this world. Is this how we understand our life before Christ? It's, it sounds pretty harsh, right? You might be sitting here this evening thinking, well, I was actually brought up in a nice Christian household. Uh, I've always been going to church and I've lived a pretty good life. So when I became a Christian, not a lot really changed. How can you then say that I was dead? Or you may be sitting here with a background of drugs and alcohol. You might have been criminally convicted and your life might have reflected this contrast a bit more. Well, Paul is saying here that you were dead. All of us were following Satan through the course of this world, no matter the life that we were living. If you're sitting here as a believer this evening, then this is where you started. And if you're sitting here not yet saved, then this is where you currently are. So who we were as spiritually dead beings determined what we did. We see an immediate paradox here as it says, we walked in our trespasses and sins following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in sons of disobedience. Well, walking here is simply strolling. We were simply strolling through the natural course of this world. But how can we be both dead and yet strolling? This doesn't literally mean physically dead. What this means is that apart from Christ, unbelievers are walking unable to please God, spiritually dead. And Paul says here, the natural course of this world was actually following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in sons of disobedience. Who we were apart from Christ, according to this passage, is spiritually dead beings, enslaved to Satan, and because of this, we were following Satan through the natural course of this world. The section of Scripture is designed to make us uncomfortable. Our reaction to the idea of being spiritually dead and unable to break away from our bondage to Satan should leave us helpless. We see this picture illustrated beautifully in the resurrection of Lazarus in John 11. Lazarus has just died and is buried in a tomb, wrapped in linen head to toe, and Jesus comes to the entrance of the tomb and says, Lazarus, come out. And the man who was dead came out. His hands and feet were bound in linen, and yet Jesus said, come out. We were spiritually dead as Lazarus here was physically dead. And it is only through the work of Christ that Lazarus was made alive again. Lazarus was dead, hands and feet bound, unable to be suddenly alive again. He didn't just decide it wasn't his time to die and chose to live. No, Christ said, Lazarus, come out. And the man who had died came out. Just as we who once were spiritually dead are unable to decide for ourselves to suddenly be made spiritually alive again. Now, as we look into verse 3, this elaborates on what following the course of the world looks like. Let's look at that with me. 
among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. We once lived in the passions of our flesh. We carried out the desires of our body and mind. So we were following Satan through the course of the world, carrying out any sinful desires that we wished. To live apart from God is to live for ourselves. Carrying out the the desires of the body and the mind means to live in disobedience to God, unable to please him. We were slaves to Satan, which means all we did was sin. And that second part of the verse, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. This shows us that we didn't come from anywhere special. We weren't the ones that had done the most good whom God chose to save. All mankind are born children of wrath, and therefore all mankind needs Christ. Being a child of wrath means under God's judgment. The importance of this section in Ephesians is to remind the church of what they were saved from. This book was written to a church of believers. We can't sit here zoning out because this no longer applies to us. We were saved from God's wrath, and understanding this allows us not only to communicate this truth to an unbelieving world, but also become more obedient to God. But thankfully, that is not where this ends. We are not left to only tell others of the wrath of God, We see an immediate contrast here in verse 4, where we find new life in Christ. Verse 4, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us. You were dead in your previous life, but God. You were slaves to the passions of your body, but God. You were, like the rest of mankind, children of wrath, but God. This contrast between the first few verses and this verse is beautiful. We have just been presented with our absolute helplessness, our complete lack of ability to live in any other way than in service to the passions of our flesh. And yet the very next thing that we read is God. God, who in spite of our disobedience and our hatred of him, offers his great love to us. This rich mercy and great love is something that we should be pretty familiar with after hearing Andrew's uh, Jonah series earlier in the year. Just as God pitied and saved a city of more than 120,000 evil, evil people, He has pitied you and I who sit here as believers this morning, this evening. And just in case that we're still of the mindset that we can claim this as our own effort, Paul repeats himself in verse 5, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. This doesn't leave any wiggle room for our part to play in our being saved. 
This doesn't say even when we were dead in our trespasses, our efforts were just enough to be saved. The language here is us being dead, spiritually lifeless. And yet we were made alive together with Christ Jesus. Looking deeper into this passage has taught me to be much more utterly perplexed about God's miraculous saving grace. We often read through the Bible and understand that God came to save us, and through Christ's death and resurrection, we are saved. And yet what blows my mind is that this language used here should make us as in awe of the power of Christ as seeing someone literally raised from the dead. If you were standing at Lazarus' grave and saw him walk out of that tomb, that shocked expression that you have at the power of Christ is the same reaction that we should have to our own justification. We were dead, and yet Christ made us alive. But not only this, this isn't where it ends either. God has also, looking in verse 6, raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. We haven't only been miraculously saved from our lifelessness. It doesn't end in our spiritual resurrection. We have then been raised up with him and seated with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Well, how does this help us understand our new identity? Who we are here in verses 5 and 6 is no longer dead. We have been made alive in Christ Jesus. We have received new life in Christ. And because this is who we are in Christ, this guides what we do in these verses. We are raised up and seated with Christ in heavenly places. But notice that this is only due to the objective work of Christ the realities of what Christ has already done for us, outside of our control. This is why we can be so encouraged by the finished work of Christ. Christ not only died for your sins on the cross and covered them past, present, and future. He then ascended and was enthroned, seated at the right hand of God, so that we may be raised up with him. This is like an Olympian being told with 100% assurance that they're going to win gold before they even compete. Because of Christ's finished work on the cross, he has already claimed that gold for us. We can know with full confidence that we will be seated with Christ in heavenly places. This has already happened for you. We can be here as believers this evening in no effort of our own but because we have been blessed with new life in Christ. And we can be assured that this new life will last eternally because we have been raised and seated with him in heavenly places. Well, so what? Why are we presented with new life in Christ? Why why us? Let's look at verse 7 so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. This verse here is ultimately saying that God loves us because he loves us. 
He has shown his love through Christ to us so that he might show his love through us. He has shown his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus because it is in his character to do so. Verses 8 and 9 then presents us with some very well-known verses that sums up salvation. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. This verse confirms what we were discussing earlier. Our faith in Christ is the result of God's grace. The sequence of this verse, for by grace you have been saved through faith. Our grace has come from the gracious, our faith has come from the graciousness of God, not by our own efforts. It is a gift of God's rich mercy, so that we may not boast in it ourselves. This doesn't mean, however, that our faith faith is passive. If we had a passive faith in God, then we wouldn't be called to act anything out in our Christianity. The Westminster's Shorter Catechism sums faith up by saying, Faith in Jesus Christ is a saving grace, whereby we receive and rest upon him alone for salvation, as he is offered to us in the gospel. Through faith, we not only receive the gift offered to us, but we rest upon him for salvation. Through faith, we then commit our lives to boasting in Christ. Well, does this mean that when we receive Christ, we should no longer be sinners? That's not the reality that we live in today. Faith in God does not mean that we are immediately recreated as perfect beings. We still suffer from our own sinful nature as well as the sinful nature of the rest of mankind. However, we have now been given the ability to not gratify these sinful desires and follow the example of Christ. Not only this, but we are promised a new creation in which there will be no sin or suffering. Revelation 21 verse 4 states, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. This is the blessing that we have in Christ, who saves us. So what are we to do in anticipation of this hope? Let's look at verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We are his workmanship. We are sculpted by God like a potter molds their clay. This means as Paul puts it in 2 Corinthians 5, that we are a new creation in Christ. We have been molded by God for good works. So here we come to our final point, 
living out our new life in Christ. Firstly, it's important to point out that this verse is not a direct contradiction of its previous verse. Our faith is not dependent on our good works, but our good works are dependent on our faith and are a byproduct of our faith, which means they also are ultimately a gift of God. Christ was and is the perfect example of an obedient son. It is only through Christ's perfect example and sacrifice on the cross that we can hope to walk in God's prepared good works. Well, what are good works? This passage alone doesn't give us all of these answers. However, it does point us towards Ephesians chapters 4 through 6, which, Lord willing, we might be at with Jono in a year's time. (laughs) But to give you a a summary, it'll uh, go over the moral law of what it means to live out a new life in Christ. Paul will go on to talk about how to love one another, how to serve one another, how to become a servant of the gospel, to continuously pray for strength, to understand God's glorious love that he has for us. Paul will talk about how a household should work and how we are to work honestly, as well as many more biblical truths around living out our new life in Christ. These good works are in no way linked to our justification. Good works cannot save you. However, they are part of the very purpose of salvation. Our righteous deeds before receiving God's blessing of new life in Christ were absolutely worthless, as they were without faith. However, our righteous deeds that flow from a faith in Christ and a desire to serve him is precisely what we were created for in Christ Jesus. Well, where does this land us? Let's look at the contrast of where we started compared to where we are now. We started off dead in our trespasses, which meant that we were walking a course apart from Christ, following the course of the world. But God, in his gracious love for us, blessed us with new life in Christ Jesus, that we may therefore walk in his prepared good works. And now that we as believers have received such a glorious blessing in Christ, we are called to a life of good works, which glorifies God, our Creator. This life of good works that we have been enabled to live should flow from a desire to glorify the one who has saved us from our death and given us new life in Christ. And if you are sitting here as an unbeliever tonight, My prayer for you would be that this passage has left you with a desire to know God, that this text has clearly shown you your need for a Savior, and that that Savior is the Lord Jesus Christ, who has taken your sins and buried them at the cross in order to present you blameless in the sight of God. 
I yearn for you to come before God with an attitude of repentance from your sin and a faith that understands the price that Christ has paid for you, that we may all become brothers and sisters in Christ and live out the rest of our lives on earth, walking in our prepared good works. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I I thank you for this powerful scripture. Lord, thank you for uh, the, the new life that is offered to us through Christ. Thank you that not only uh, may we receive new life and live in our prepared good works, but Lord, we have full assurance that this new life points us towards a new creation, being raised and seated with you in heavenly places. Thank you for that truth. Lord, I pray especially for any unbelievers here this evening that you may be speaking in them, Lord. Lord, I I yearn for them to come to you uh, with a heart of repentance, and I just pray that that might be true. Lord, that they will seek out answers to their questions and ultimately get to know you more and more. Lord, I pray uh, for our continued worship here this evening. Uh, Thank you for everyone involved and the gifts that the team has. In, In your mighty name we pray. Amen.